Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Sabrina Woodworth. Sabrina is a project manager and professional engineer with Floor Corporation, where she has worked for the past 17 years. Along the way, Sabrina also launched Work Lessons 101, which started as an effort to codify everything she'd learned in the first decade of her career. These lessons were ultimately compiled into a book, and Sabrina continues to dispense work lessons and provide career and leadership coaching today. She graduated with an engineering degree from the University of British Columbia, and she and her family live in Vancouver, British Columbia. Sabrina, welcome. Thanks for doing the show with me. Thanks, JR. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with your work at Floor. Tell our audience what you do for them. I am currently a project manager. So I essentially run the project. So I work in the EPC world. So engineering, procurement, construction. So Floor Corporations has multiple business lines, but they primarily work in the industrial industry, resource industry. So oil and gas and mining. I've worked on both sectors, but I am currently running and leading a concentrator plant for zinc and lead out of Arizona. It's going to be just finishing up feasibility studies. So I am leading that project and we are just about to go get ready in September to go to their board to get sanctioned for the project to build it. So we do the engineering then procure all the engineering and equipment. It's major, major industrial equipment, do the logistics and everything to make sure it can get to the location of the site where the mineral deposit is. And then we build that processing plant. And what a processing plant does for the audience that doesn't know what that is, we process ore. So... I'm a metallurgist by trade, and so we get the ore body, which will have percentages of different minerals. In this case, zinc and lead, zinc being a critical mineral, so that's the important one. Process it through the plant to get it down to a certain like 28% zinc, and then it goes out the door and it hits a refinery, and that concentrate will get turned into metal at that point. You went to school, got your degree in engineering, you have your professional engineering designation, which not everybody who gets an engineering degree gets. I didn't. I never bothered. Any Me, four years here in Canada. So it is like it's like medical school. Like you can't be a doctor without medical school. You can't be an engineer, professional certified stamp in engineer without your four year. So yeah, it's really so, eight years. A lot of people they do the degree and then don't realize that there's a whole four-year practicum, but at least you get paid doing it. Yeah. When did you decide that you wanted to be an engineer? You know, I always kind of laugh at that because I actually never wanted to be an engineer. I was really, really good at math. So I knew my multiplication and division tables at the age of four. So my brother got bored one day and decided, hey, you know, I'm going to teach my little sister some math and science. And 
So that was at four. And then around six years of age, I got diagnosed with dyslexia and I was mm-hmm. severely dyslexic. So I couldn't read till I was like nine because they had to like deprogram my backward alphabet and how I wrote out of me. And it took years to do that. So I was really behind my classmates when I came to like the reading and the writing side of education, but excelled. Like I was four grade levels ahead of my math. So I was very good at math. And so my father encouraged me from this age onwards to go be an engineer. And so it kind of got embedded into my mindset that when I finished high school, that I was going to go off and do my bachelor of engineering degree. They were immigrants and they were quite poor by Canadian standards. So that was a really stable job. So my father really, and I don't want to paint him in the wrong picture, like one of my biggest fans in life, but he really encouraged me to go in that to the extent that I almost didn't think I even had a choice. So I actually really liked math. So it wasn't like I didn't have an interest in it, but I think in retrospect, I probably would have been a better scientist than an engineer, you know, which is far more practical of application of science versus research and theoretical science from a pure interest standpoint. But yeah, the math, you know, I'm very, very good at advanced mathematics. So it was just a logical at the time. And then again, coming from a poor background for Canada standards, it was a really stable job and So I kind of went in it at 18, not really having any big plans for it and um, and really working out for me. That's why I'm no longer an engineer. If everyone's kind of wondering why I'm a project manager, about eight years into my career, I did. I did four years of my practicum. I got my professional certificate. I did another four years. I did an international assignment over in Mongolia for a year and a half. We commissioned a copper mine over there. It increased their GDP in Mongolia by 30%. That was a Rio Tinto project. You know, it's a Rio Tinto huge copper distributor of the world, big, big company. So I just got really exposed to like big corporate operations, different cultures, but I got exposed to kind of just lead in there and realize that, you know, I like the engineering industry. I don't really like being a practice. I still kept my ticket though. Like it's very powerful to have your ticket as a project manager. It gives you a ton of credibility as a metallurgist and and as that. So I can still review and stamp drawings. I've never lost the skill set, but I have advanced more on the management side of these big, big projects versus doing the process. But being a process engineer is pretty wicked. You learn the entire process of what we buy and build, right? I did have a bit of a secret advantage that I'd say some of my counterpart in the industry because I did the process, which is essentially the plant. Mm. You don't have a good process. You don't get the recovery and our clients don't make the money they need to make to make these projects viable. So to have all that technical ability has helped me you know, be competitive in a very competitive industry, right? In the sense of you know, that a lot of project managers just don't have a technical skill set ability. So they can't put two hats on where they're like, okay, well, the very early study phase, it's very process metallurgy driven. So I can easily do that and be a project manager at the same time. So you're kind of like a a double, triple threat. I'm curious, just, you know, when you talk about the process piece, like this project that you're working on in Arizona, so is the customization of the process dependent on what else is in the ore that you're pulling out of the ground. And so therefore you have to figure out how to optimize getting it to a certain degree of purity, right? Okay. There is a lot. So it takes at least 10 years from a discovery of a deposit to production, minimum 10 years. So everyone, like when these chips and all these supply chain issues started to show some some cracks in the foundation during COVID, everyone always has to remember that mining is the beginning of the supply chain. You will not have the technology in the world by 2030. We will not all be driving electric cars by this time. There is not enough minerals coming out of the earth. These are right. rare earths too. And they're rare earths right in their name because they're rare. 
the deposits aren't easy to find. They are not being produced at the demand to meet the physical demands. So for all you investors listening out there, follow the mining market, follow lithium, follow these rare earth commodities, because there's going to be a massive demand in the market for these, and there is not enough coming out. And anytime you have a massive demand and not a big market coming up, that's when things skyrocket, right? So the mining industry is for the very first time in my career, and I've been in here for 17 years, everyone, 17 years, I've been waiting for this super cycle to start. And I think I'm starting to see the infancy of it. So yeah, being a metallurgist is a huge advantage. Every ore body on the earth is 100% different. That is what makes your skill set so unique is that you have to size and create the process to process that ore body. That is why nothing can be standardized. Like, you know, this big thing with AI and this big movement in tech, like, super cool. I follow it. I'm an innovator at my heart, but it is very hard to apply to these industries because they're so unique. Like there's certain things you can standardize, like a pump foundation, like a pump sits on a pump, but all pumps are different. All of them are different powers, different uses, and they produce it in it. And to design a pump, how high they're pumping the material to is Mm. a huge factor in how it gets sized. And so all these unique factors and then your throughput. Like, so what I mean by throughput is there's not every mining project's the same size. Zinc, for example, is a completely different mineral than copper. Copper's worldwide demand is gigantic. It also controls the price a lot more because there's a lot more people in the game. Zinc, which is a very smaller demand, there's not as many projects and therefore there's, Mm -hmm. you know, so people aren't exploring the deposits. So And now the Biden administration in the United States is a great example. And I'm assuming Canada at some point will follow behind. And Australia has already done this. Is they have critical mineral lists. So these are critical minerals that you absolutely need to run complex society. China, for example, owns a lot of this. Russia is a huge mining company. And with the war going on right now and all these sanctions that we can't buy from Russia, and that's not going to change soon, even if the war ends, they have put all these like different constraints on these markets that aren't producing. Like there's not a zinc project in the United States that produces zinc right now, for example. So that's why the project I'm working on it is pretty important because it relies us to not have dependency from North America. And I, I look at the United States as a very close ally. So when it comes to this type of discussion, I don't see two countries. I, I see a continent and that you're trying to be yeah. self-sufficient. And and that's kind of where like people always talk about war, the future, and they go on these like can't these like long things about oil and yeah, oil, water, and minerals. They're pretty important for our society. They make us have the unbelievable quality of life we have in the first world. You know, that's why I have power in my house, hot water that heats up the water. Like all this infrastructure comes from a very constant supply of power, right? And yeah. so issues with droughts and issues with Europe going on right now when they're dependent on the pipelines from Russia. That's right. all about power, like little, like not like political power. I'm talking about physical. You can turn on your lights, power, your house right. in the winter, power. Right. And so gas prices in Europe have, are really high right now. And that's primarily the reason, right? So when people say critical minerals, it's all in the title, rare earths, it's all in the title. Like it's just interesting right now that you're seeing a shift. And then we have this huge climate change argument going on at the same time and a ton of permitting applications in these huge countries like Australia, Canada, and America. When I started my career in 06, they didn't exist, this permanent process. And it's critical path on almost all our projects. It has the power to shut down a project. So and you have to be like the mine industry has to be responsible. So I always say that I'm proud to be in the mining industry because I truly believe to my core 
that if the mining industry and the oil and gas industry are not brought into this discussion on climate change, climate change will never happen. We will not put in the right sanctions. We need to maintain our way of life. Like that's pretty much a non-negotiable, in my opinion. I think you live pretty much in a delusional world if you think people are going to sacrifice they're people, unless we're like literally at the end of the resource belt. And that's dear. And we're not, we're nowhere near that. So like you, we need to work as a industry and bring in the economy argument because there's very poor countries in the world that will never compromise their economy and their people right. for climate change because they don't have the luxury of the first world and see it from that perspective. And I think it is extremely naive and very first worldish, rich and entitled perspective for you to put your rights onto them that they don't have that luxury of this free healthcare that we have in Canada, this maintenance of life. And that goes, and I think in the mining industry, because I've traveled to very poor countries by Canada standards, many of these places are democracies. I don't want to insult the countries by any means. They have decent quality of life, but it's still not the same level. And so I mm. always find sometimes that like we're very spoiled and privileged here. And unless you actually recognize by going to these places in the world and being really absorbed, the hardships that they have to go to, if you can't feed your child, you don't care about the economy. You don't care about climate change. And that's where, so if we don't start to equalize that playing field and start to realize that oil and gas is not going anywhere, guys. And if you think we can live without oil, you do not understand the supply chain of the world and you do not understand the complexity of the economy. Huge reason I work in the mine industry is I'm extremely passionate about the environment. And I have from say day one, and I feel like I've done so much change on the inside, you know, making more sustainable designs and how we execute our work, recycling water really trying to minimize the footprint using solar when possible. My client, South 32, is one of the most ethically advanced clients on this matter. And it's just wonderful working with a very forward-thinking client like that. You know, so we're getting there, guys. But again, you can't be so naive to shut all these minds down. Like at the end of the day, like you don't have supply chain, you don't have a house, you don't have TV, you don't have your iPhone. You don't have battery, you don't have Teslas, you don't have any of the minerals. I think an iPhone, like, don't quote me on this, but it has like 47 minerals in it. So like a lot of people don't understand the complexity of how an ore body feeds and then how long, like a lot of the mines we build have like 30 year lifespans. So they're going to be supplying the world for the next 30 years. But yeah. at the same time, for the last 10 years, we've had a lot of mines to come down and none coming up. So you're just starting to see the start of some of these issues. COVID kind of preempted them due to shutdowns of warehouses in China and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. that's just the start. There's a much bigger issue there about trying to secure stocks, right? So, and if they're not careful, BEVs, I use that one as a big example because all the politicians in all of the world, like it's not just Canada, they're making these statements about like 2030, 2050. And right now we're not producing enough minerals to hit these targets. So yeah. If they want to put everybody in India into a battery electric tech car, that's not going to happen. And we also don't have the grid power plants to supply that power because that too is fossil fuels and minerals. You know what I mean? So there is no such thing as not having a carbon footprint, not in today's society, like in, mm. you know, with all the medical advancements, all that takes power and costs and minerals. And it's very complex stuff. That's why I love reading about it. I love hearing about it. I wish politicians we're more educated about it. And it's buzzword right now. You know what I mean? Carbon-free doesn't mean it is. Like nothing is like all those, again, those battery electric, they plug into the grid. It's all fossil fuels. Right. Might be lesser footprint in the big picture once we get the full infrastructure set up. But that infrastructure takes years and it takes a lot of money and energy to do it. Like if everybody plugged in their vehicle at the end of the day at six o'clock, there'd be a massive 
surge on the grid and you need to make sure that the power and the grids are designed to be able to hit that influx. And unfortunately, with renewables, they don't have that complexity mm-hmm. to them. They can't do that right now. And we should be researching into this technology. So in the next 10 to 20 years, it is good enough, but it's not good enough right now. So if your governments are investing highly into these things, I'm worried. It's, it's not going to work. If they're not ready, they can't handle complex society. And what I mean by complex society is multiple different surges on the grid. That's complex society. That's what I mean by having not just one in, one out. That's simple. That's not how humans work in society, right? (laughs) Talk about work lessons. How did that come about? So I was on maternity leave. I guess the inception of the idea came earlier than that. I just wasn't very fulfilled. Maybe a few years into project management at this time. Okay. And the one thing, so this is true. You know, there's a label like when you're working in the cubicle world or on the ground floor, junior positions, you have a lot more day to day talking with your colleagues. There's a lot more teamwork there. Once you go Mm -hmm. into management, which is great because you can influence and make decisions and influence outcome. Like, I still would not change in any way my career path into management, but I didn't diagnose it at the time. But I started to feel this real big void about once I moved into management that I just wasn't helping anyone. I wasn't mentoring anyone to the level I was when I was surrounded by the team and hearing all the gossip every day and hearing this and that. I just wasn't involved. And so that's really kind of the inception of the idea. When I get into any depression in any way, I always reflect and try to diagnose where it's coming from. I don't ignore it. I I think ignoring it and thinking it's going to go away just makes it come out even bigger in the future, right? So I went through some old resumes and I eventually found my old work journals. And I used to write a lot more when I was younger, just simply because I've always written. I've always loved to write. It's a hobby of mine. It distresses me. And I just found like stuff I used to write, found my old journals from Mongolia. And it was filled with all these lessons in it, it filled with all these like, I learned this this way, or I witnessed this and all these like changing discussions I had with like some wicked mentors I met over there. And and I just kind of started this light bulb kind of went off and I said, oh, you know, what if I transform this into a book. This was kind of at the same time, like Instagram was kind of taken off and where content creators became kind of a thing. And so I read a couple of books, like, so this is kind of reverse mentoring at its best. I'm mentoring these young engineers and they're like, well, have you heard of Gary Vee and, and how he's crushing it in this book. And while I'm definitely not a fan of Gary Vee anymore, that book crushing it definitely changed my perspective on how to create content and really kind of taught me how to do it. So I am very grateful I think the book's probably outdated at this point. I think content creation is way more complex days than it was, say, four years ago when I started, um, because there's so many more people even doing now. Like I got yeah. into LinkedIn when no one was really on LinkedIn. So I kind of got the wave. And now there's a lot more competition with content is what I'm saying. So I kind of just had this void from not mentoring everyone. And yeah, and then I realized that my mentoring has changed. I don't work with new grads much anymore being in project management. I'm working a lot more with the intermediates and the soon-to-be senior leads and who has to go into project management. So it made me see things from a perspective. So the book's far more targeted to the more than newer grad or up to about 10 years work experience, depending on the industry and really teaching you those hard knocks you learn. I don't think school properly prepares. Not that I want to criticize education. I had an excellent education, but it definitely didn't prepare me for Mongolia, it didn't prepare me how to work with multiple cultures. It did not prepare me on the emotional intelligence level and how to communicate effectively and how to influence decisions. It didn't teach me how to sell my capabilities as a professional. It definitely didn't teach me how to like handle a bully in the work face or even mm. how to recognize a bully in the work face because it's not 
the kid who pushes you at the playground. It is far more sneaky than that. And so that's where I kind of just started this book and I started sharing it with colleagues and they're like, oh, this is really good. This really helped people. And and that's when I decided when I walked away from my corporate career for a year, when I had my son. So in Canada, you can take up to 18 months. So I ended okay. up taking 14 months and I wrote it. So this is why I say people are like a lot of other, how do you write a book when you had an infant? Like that's just impossible. So nothing's impossible, but nothing's also possible. So you need to look at the time you have to dedicate mm-hmm. to any goal you have in mind. And so little babies, they don't necessarily sleep for long periods of time, but they sleep often. My son did a lot of these like little cat naps, these 20, 30 minute naps. And so how I broke down the work, and that's why it's broken down into work lessons, which are maybe two to 300 words at any given time, it took me no more than half an hour to write each one of those lessons. Then you go and edit it after, you know, whatever. But yeah, so I could always write kind of one little lesson. So I broke them down into themes and then hit them out when he napped. And and I wrote every single day. And I don't think I like six, 7,000 word days, even though I'm very capable of that if I have the time. But I did have like maybe these two or three pocket of hours. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just kind of broke um, a couple of those little cat naps into work lessons. And then, yeah, over the entire year, 80,000 words were written. This is why I say baby steps can big milestones, but you need yep. to be very organized and understand your time restraints. Like being consistent and determined is probably the more important element of a goal. Mm. Not the quality. The quality will come with practice. You, as a writer, you become better the more you write. It's one of those skills. Not every skill is like that. You may never be great at basketball and you can practice every day. But when it comes to certain cognitive skills like writing, you will get better the more you do it. Just how and the brain works and how the neurons connect, like that's how it works. And so when you do that, that makes you better and makes you efficient and makes you faster. So the work lessons became more and more and more refined. You might even see it throughout the book because I actually wrote that book in chronological order. So I think my writing is better later in the book than it was at the beginning of the book. At least when I've reread it recently, I see that as a writer, but normal to criticize your own writing. Anyway, that's kind of how I did it. So when I always say like people are trying to work out, lose weight, but they're like, I can't get to the gym. And then I'm like, squish the gym. I can't get to the gym. I don't have a gym membership, but I work out every single day. Mm -hmm. So what I do is high intensity interval training and it's 20 minutes a day. I can always dedicate 20 minutes a day, whether it's on my lunch hour, first thing in the morning or before I go to bed. It's like, it's easy to find 20 minutes, but I'm determined to always find that 20 minutes. It is much, much harder to do an hour or that, especially with kids, like kids complicate everything. That's why I say to younger people, life's unkind. Sometimes you have all the time in the world, but no experience. So, you know, that's kind of part of the book is guide you a little bit through some of the stuff that as a young person consume you. Like if your boss isn't happy with you, or if you have a bad boss is a good one. Bad bosses right out of your career are really unlucky. Yeah. I really feel bad for you because it kind of contains the way you see work. It actually has a ton of power and influence over your perspective. And anytime you can influence a young person's perspective in the negative is a real bad thing. Like, I'm very concerned about that. And that's why I always say we travel, you know, that whole gap year. I know a lot of people in North America are super against that gap year at 18. And I'm really, really for it because... The more you travel and the more you see the world, the more you realize you're not all that different from each other. And if Mm. you can start to realize that the people that are just born with less of a disadvantage from you are actually not all that different from you, I think that perspective at 18, 19 years of age is going to help you more in life than anything else. I think if you're going to be a leader one day and manage teams and not to be a man, I mean a leader, be a proper, effective, good leader. And that's who I, I want to produce leaders. And leaders are selfless in many ways and leaders 
do things and see the bigger picture. They are not naive. They have a ton of common sense, a ton of emotional intelligence, but it takes a lot of experience to be able to be those effective leaders. You can have natural leadership, but still not be a leader because you don't have that element of wisdom yet. So you can be leaders in your level, like I was captain in my hockey team because I knew hockey because I started playing hockey when I was five. So by the time I was 15, I had 10 years of experience in hockey and then all the time watching it, roughing it, coaching young kids in it. I was an expert, I would say, in my later teenage years by this point on hockey. I'm just saying like at your own level, you can be very much leader, but leading these projects that I lead, it's very hard for someone at the age of 25 to do it because you just don't have that technical big picture ability to have executed a project yet. So, and just so people understand what I'm actually saying, these projects are in the billions of dollars. Like these are yeah. not one, $2 million project. If you're talking to someone who's 18, they'd be like one, 2 million, that's so much money. And I'm like, it's all relative. I said, my company's completely tainted me on how I see money, not individual investment money because that I don't have. But from a project perspective, $2 is not very hard to get banks to give you. A billion dollars is all pretty hard. Yeah, and That's why the mining industry is interesting right now because you have these inflation rates, these high interest rates around the world now. Mineral prices have yet to go up and all the costs of building these projects are super high with the inflation and the supply chain issues have plagued since COVID, yet the mineral prices haven't gone up. So it doesn't make any sense. I'm like, yeah, you're right. That doesn't make any sense. So it's kind yeah. of funny. It's, it's interesting times in resource industry. I said, I've never seen the world in this particular situation because usually when oil prices go really high, a recession quickly follows. That's why 08 was so detrimental. I can give any advice to the young people today because I know you have no money. You might have a huge student loan, so you're not even thinking about it. This is the time to learn your finances and learn how to invest and learn how corporations work, learn how banks work, learn how to read a stock portfolio and the charts. And because one day you do have money, all that knowledge gain will be highly effective. When 08 happened, I started my financial education. I made some pretty good stock investments that paid my down payment for my house. Once I started to go when COVID happened and when these things, you could make some really good financial decisions because you have liquidable cash, which is always powerful. But the most important thing is, is you have the knowledge. So never be scared to learn. I've met so many adults older than me around my age that are scared to learn the financial industry. It's like they're scared to like lose money. By doing nothing, you are going poor safely, in my opinion. So yeah. like this is some pretty easy stuff to learn. It's all online now. Like formal education has changed so much, but like the informal is advanced so much. So obviously there's a lot of garbage out there too. So that's why sometimes reading a few books that people you work with, you know, have made money by learning the skills in there. You know, some of the good ones to read are like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's a perspective book that gives Mm. you kind of the perspective on how the rich think, because that's the CEOs. If you ever get into corporate elite America, that's exactly how people like that think. I've been around them. It's brilliant. And then the wealthy barber is the basics, you know, how to save 10% of your salary and how to invest it. Little things that worked out really well for me is every raise I ever got in the first five years of my career, I saved. So I never, ever stop living off that base salary. As soon as you get money on that paycheck, it goes to something frivolous or something you don't need. So if you never see it, it doesn't get spent. Again, that's me. I'm really, really good at managing debt because I've never had money. So I've always been really good at paying credit cards, line of credit, and student loans off. But once I started to get into the positive, I just started spending it on stuff. 
I never had it. And then I realized in the 08 collapse that I was actually not setting myself up for a future mm. because the market crashed, and it would have been an amazing year to buy real estate. I didn't have a down payment saved and that's my own stupidity. And again, notice it, don't get too hard on yourself, just change it so you don't make the mistake again. And that's what I did. I started putting all that money aside, started reading these books And then I ended up doing my securities course. What that means in Canada is that's the course that allows you to trade stocks. Mm -hmm. So I had no ambition to manage other people's money. I did not want that responsibility. That's a very stressful job. And I did not want that responsibility, but I'm glad I did it because it taught me how to do my own money and it taught me how to help my family and set my parents up very well and stuff like that. And that's what I did, right? And I would really recommend everyone, as soon as you kind of start to notice yourself running away from something, get on it. That's where you got to dig into it and learn. But finance is a common one. I always see young people get, especially people that come from not wealthy families. Yeah, you're hitting on, you focus on a lot of different things in the book. As you say, mainly you aimed it at people who are kind of in their first decade. And yeah. some of it is about your financial future. You cover that and it sounds like you're very passionate about it. But more generally, there's this sense, I think it's not my generation, right? But there's a sense certainly of that generation that is in their twenties and thirties that like the people who are older than them have kind of screwed the world up and made it not the sort of progressively getting better every year for every generation kind of place that, as you say, that you were promised. There's a lot else in the book about just making a good start and coming to terms with what it's like to be in the work world. You had a bit of that time in Mongolia. How did you learn those lessons? How did you sort of build that experience base that you now dispense out to other people? You got to be that open-minded person. So you got to ride things through, guys. You don't call the Super Bowl at halftime. And you got to realize that about yourself. You got to really know who you are as a person. There is a self-awareness element that comes from reflection and learning from your mistakes but owning to your mistakes and bringing that accountability. You want to blame the baby boomers for screwing up the world. You go right ahead and blame the baby boomers. How does that help you today? Is all I ever ask people. How does you blame and anyone help you today in your future? And you absolutely might not be at fault. You might have been given an absolute unfair poker hand, but you still have all the control in the world and how you react to it. And that it's sadly sometimes is maybe the secondary prize, but it is what's in your control. And I had that natural resilience driven into me by sports, by being cut for teams I felt like I deserved Mm. to be on. From parents who were very resilient. My mom came here from Italy in the 60s. She had no money, like none. They had like 20 bucks in their pocket. They slept on couches. People who sponsored them to get over here, they had it really, really rough. They didn't even have electricity when they were kids in Italy after the war. Like It was horrible compared to the standards that I grew up in. Mm. My mom did write her memoir in COVID, so I learned a lot about her. But is how they raised my brother and I. You know, I was dyslexic too at the age of six. So I wasn't smart like the other kids were. Like I was different right from the get-go in a very small way. But when you're six, that is a big deal. Like you only have your little six-year-old perspective of the world. You don't have your 40-year-old perspective of the world. So when you're a parent and you're raising, I learned so much just raising my son. I got to see the world through his eyes. It gives me a different outlook. So I think that's helped me be a better mentor and coach to young people because they're only seeing it from their 22-year-old eyes. And don't insult those 22-year-old eyes. They only know what they know. So help them see what they're missing. But that comes from you. You have to be open-minded. And I think I always took that outlook. So when I went to Mongolia as an example, the first nine months there sucked. I was the only female. I'm blonde. 
like I'm five, four, 110 pounds, like I'm tiny. And so people didn't take me seriously because they just looked at me and people are like, again, this was 11 years ago or 12 years ago. So everyone's like, oh my God, that is like sexist. Yeah, it is. You're right. It is. Nothing was very obvious. Everyone just gave me a hard time. And the construction world is rugged to begin with. It is full of men, but it's right. full of tough men. Like, and not just the alpha males, because I don't want to paint these men in a negative way. Some of them are extremely good people. Like little things. When I was in the middle of Mongolia, safety was a concern. He was my boyfriend at the time, was and my father, of course, is always very concerned about my safety. And you're in this other part of the world and all these things. And a lot of the men walked me back home every night to my room very gentleman-like chivalrous. That too is technically sexist, but let's have enough common sense here. That is a good thing. That is a behavior Mm. you want to reward. And that's how I'm going to raise my son. And I'm very grateful that they went out of their way to look out for me because physically, if someone wanted to attack me, I wasn't going to stand much of a charm. So my way of proving myself was never going to come from a physical element. It was going to come from an intellectual one. It was going to come from solving difficult problems. For the first nine months, I knew I was going to have a hard time. And again, you got to draw that line. You always deserve to be treated as a professional, which I was, but they gave me a hard time. And what I mean by that is they wouldn't give me real work to really prove myself. So one time this one little thing came up, something broke at site and no one wanted to go fix it. So I volunteered. I had no idea how to do it, but I volunteered. So get away with that doubt, that fear and just say yes, say yes sometimes. And then I went and solved it. I asked for help too. I got a lot of people helping me, but it's also how you ask for help. It's who you call on, you know, you know, how to build relationships, get favors. I call on a lot of favors. There's a lot of people out there that owe me things and I owe a lot of people things, but this is how it works. That's how the world works. That's how a network works. You you build these relationships by being good people, being authentic, but delivering your word means something. So when I say I promise, or you got my word, people can take it up to the bank and cash it. It means everything to me. That is my reputation. That is value. You, no one can take that away. No employer can take that away from you. They lay you off. You got a network and you got credibility. You'll get a job somewhere else. You can call in a network and probably have a job by the end of the week. That's how things work. That's how the world works. So by going into Mongolia and saying, oh, they're being tough to me. I'm going to go home. Well, I would have lost out on an amazing opportunity to prove myself. And some mm-hmm. people saying, well, you shouldn't have to. You always have to prove yourself. And that's men and women. No matter what, you have to prove yourself. You got to solve difficult problems and you got to be accountable. And that always stems from you taking on that challenge. The first thing in any amazing journey in life is you saying yes. Are you saying no to take another journey? But it starts with whatever decision you make. It starts with you and how people treat you, you react to is you're in control. How people treat you, you can train them to treat you better. So I don't judge too quickly, I've learned. I've realized there's sides to stories, there's different sides to stories, and how people communicate is also a product of their environment they're raised in. So if a man is a little sexist, maybe he comes from their upbringing. So I dig into it a little different. Am I the person that comes across their life that can change their outlook on something? I give them a benefit of the doubt, especially if I have time to in Mongolia. So I did. I built a lot of relationships there, and I turned a lot of people's opinions around. So again, That's how I see an enemy. I want to make them a friend. And that's just how I look at it. And there's obviously people that I hit right off because some people cannot be saved. Mm. And the more and more and more you work with people and the more and more you try to help people and the more and more you try to teach people, you become a better judge on who is capable of change and who is not. And as a coach too, like there's a lot of clients I will not take just because I don't think they're ready for a coach. I'm definitely not the coach. 
I'm a very big on accountability. So if you're just someone who wants to hire a coach to say that you hired a coach and then blame me when nothing changes in your life, well, I have no interest in wasting my time on you. Even if you're paying me, that's a waste. I don't coach for money. I coach for that gratification at the end of it, that I help someone that didn't have access in their own life to someone like a mentor or a coach or a family member that needed to help them just a little bit, or if they're not getting it from their parents, right? The common story I see with people is, you know, a lot of time their parents are making them do something they don't want to do because they're either funding it. And so some of it's just building the confidence that they can walk away from that right? So they can actually pursue something they want to, you know, a lot of people are like forced into medical school because they're like intelligent enough to do medical school, but they hate it. You always have options. It's the harder road. It's much easier just to take the money, you know, do that, but you will regret that decision when you're older. So that's the thing. It comes down to who, and I do reflection and I do exercises where I try to think of what myself in 10 years wish I did today. That's why I say the financial thing. Don't be scared to learn finance when you're 22 because the 32-year-old version of you is going to love the 22-year-old version decision. They're going to love you. They're going to be so grateful because I remember when I start saving all these raises and it was like three grand, five grand, eight grand. What the hell can you do with that? I can't buy a house with that. And so you're this little number. And then all of a sudden it started to eventually grow into hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I just got 10% last year. And that's a huge increase in like that snowball's really big. So it's collecting a lot of snow as it's running down that steep hill. But sometimes it takes a decade to get that like momentum going. And then now I'm at a point now where I don't actually have to put anything in my 401 or my RSPs, depending on what's called in your country, basically right. retain retirement. You're fine. You can kind of walk away. And now you're, you're in this position where you make high salaries you have the skill sets, you have the confidence to leave your job if it's toxic in any way. And then you're at this point financially where not only do you have liquidable cash, you have investments and portfolios and multiple. I have high risk portfolios, like with exploration mining companies, which is pretty much just pissing money away. And then there's like the dividends, the blue chip companies that I bought when they were low and the dividends give me a really steady percentage every year. And this is it. But it literally doesn't get like this. Like I'm 41 for everyone. Listen, it doesn't get like this till you're in your 40s or your late mm. 30s. Because when I was in my 20s, like, trust me, I did say, what's this all for? Like, why am I doing this? Sometimes being patient pays off dividends, guys. And when it comes into the investment world, that's it does, right? If you're not born into wealth, you're like me, you got to grow it all. My son, I think, reaping more of the rewards of what I've done. You know this, you're a parent. What's the generation? It takes the generation to build it, the generation to maintain it, and then the generation to blow it. So <laughs> you got to teach your kids that resiliency, that determination by remaining open-minded. And it comes from a really strong set of values. If people really want to know, confidence in who you are actually does come from a strong set of values and understanding your deal breakers and what you're not going to do. It's really easy to quit a job when you know what you're willing to quit a job for. It's really easy to stick up to the client that wants you to do something when you know you're willing to be kicked off the project for. When Mm. you have that strong sense of value and that strong sense of self-awareness, you actually know all these answers before any of these situations arise. So people always ask me how I'm so confident. And it's because I spend a lot of time thinking about what ifs. And Mm -hmm. how I would react to situations. And I really just taught myself not to say anything right away. I like to solve problems, a strength in many cases, but it can also be a weakness when sometimes you need to shut up and just like the situation, whatever you're in happen organically and let other people speak up so you can gather information and understand what's really going on. 
because lots of people will try to trick you. Like as a project manager, my manager, you will have clients or team members try to get you to say an early yes without you having all the information. It's actually really common. It happens mm-hmm. all the time. Especially well, in project management. Me. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happens all the time. Well, you said you'd get it to me, but I didn't know this, this, and this when I told you that. So that's why not committing, asking lots of questions and that open-minded, it saves you in so many aspects of your life. If you just pause and ask questions, because everyone's like, well, I got to give an answer. And I was like, why? Why do you have to give an answer right away? Is there a deadline? Did they tell you the deadline? It's a big, serious decision and they're not giving you 24 hours. It's really that simple. And so like I actually was in the situation recently where I had to give an answer and my answer was no, if I had to give an answer right away. That was what my instincts are. And that's another thing. The older you get, the more you trust your instincts. It's experience. Yeah. And it's that clock. Like sometimes your brain is a few seconds behind your instincts. You know what I mean? Like Mm. it's the flight or fight, you know, response. Like sometimes you're already doing the action because, but your brain is like that few seconds behind kind of like, oh, what just happened? But if you train yourself, you become an expert in it. Like you become that pause. You don't always have to pause, but if you always do it, then you're never going to be wrong or never going to say something too early before. It's like playing poker, that straight face, sitting back and just not giving up any information. It's just not a bad idea. It's wisdom. Yeah. I always say young, that's how you can tell someone's young. And it doesn't mean an age thing. There's lots of older people that aren't wise. And mm-hmm. that's generally is when they make massive generalizations. I've learned anything in my life. There's an exception to everything. And I understand the exceptions very rarely apply. So sometimes making the decision for the greater good or for the, it's definitely the right decision, but you can't make that judgment typically right away. And, and you're in complex projects. So the civil team, who's doing all the earthworks at site? Oh, I need an extra week to do this. Well, that seems pretty minor, but you don't know necessarily if that one week is connected to something, you know, six months down the road. And by doing that decision now, and if you never reflect on your decisions, you'll never learn those mistakes. You'll just go forward thinking you did it. And so the problem with these mega projects in the industry I work in is they're six to 10 years long. Yeah. And so you rarely start a project to finish a project. I've done that was Mongolia. I started and finished that one to start up. I'm hoping the one I'm on right now, I get to, to build and start up too. That'll be now my second. I'm 17 years of my career. And I've done it once technically right now. So like some projects get canceled. Like, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But generally you get promoted and moved off of them, right? It's a different team and different skill sets. There's definitely project managers that are better in studies than detailed in execution, like different skill sets for different tasks. So sometimes it happens, but it's rare that you finish your own project for that long, right? So you need to sometimes go back to the projects that you have finished or someone else has taken over and just, how's it going? How's the schedule going? How's it doing? Were you able to execute to that? Oh no, we weren't. I'm like, what? And then that's the night, what happened? So like, if I just don't learn that lesson, then I'll just keep executing forward under this false knowledge of that it worked well. Yeah. And eventually you'll plateau. Like I'm a big optimist on, I think maybe once in a while we do naturally plateau. Like we can only be as intelligent sometimes as even with gain knowledge and everything. But the great thing about emotional intelligence is I do believe it's exponential. So I do think you can constantly create a higher EQ on that. And I'm not even convinced you can't increase your IQ by gaining knowledge and learning and executing and really becoming smarter that way. Like they can really feed each other to level you up into a very highly intelligent, effective leader that can make really effective decisions. And part of making effective decisions is asking the right questions, gathering the information and getting the right people on your team to fill in your knowledge gaps. And that also stems from that self-awareness. So that's why 
these leaders are really hard to find. They are hard to find yeah. because there's a lot of skills that go into being a leader. Do you consider yourself to have natural emotional intelligence or did you have to learn it? I had natural to some degree. I definitely needed to learn to listen. I still remember it. It was about 17. And I remember not understanding my actions had the repercussions to other people. So that one definitely was instilled by my mother. And that one I did. I was almost narcissistic. They say it's very natural when you're going through an adolescent growth to to be very narcissistic and be self-involved. But I wasn't narcissistic in the sense that like, you know, I wanted to look in the mirror and I was just very confident and just never doubted myself. Hmm. But at an ignorance level, I literally had no life experience or any reason to be confident. It was kind of arrogant. And so that's where I kind of really recognized that other people struggled always very caring to people. I was never a bully and I was always someone that would fight the bully. I was always the David that would go after the Goliath. I hated bullies from day one. And that was my parents, just I think the values they taught into me because they were at a disadvantage being so poor and they really built their empire from nothing. I mean, having a really close family and friends group of people, I was really rich with the people that I got to share dinner with every day, like a lot of love and that really rubs off on you. So I feel very, very, very sad for people who got raised in any toxic, abusive environment as a child. I just feel so bad for them because again, that perspective, it goes back to that changing that perspective. at such an impressionable part of your life that very hard to undo when you're older, because the people who were supposed to teach you how to love and how to enter the world were maybe not your greatest and biggest fans. The great thing about being a parent is that your kid might not appreciate it. I appreciate it now as an adult, what my parents sacrificed, but I definitely went through a period of time where I thought that was entitled and everyone had that. And it was a little bit of a wake up call when I went off to university and realized I started dating. I think that was a big one. I started dating, you know, my parents to this day are, but I think they're celebrating 48 years this month. And my in-laws are still, they're like 52 years married. So and my parents went through some big financial problems in the early nineties, like almost losing their house. There's a lot of argument and like a lot of stress and but they stayed together. And I think a lot of people nowadays wouldn't stick together through really bad crap like that. So I mm-hmm. think my brother and I, we're both very happily married people, but we pick people very value oriented like us in our foundation. Like I married my opposite on the surface. If you looked at us, like I'm a massive extrovert, he's a massive introvert, like we're night and day. But when you look at our values, they're exactly the same. We got raised in very stable families. And if you look at any statistic, the kids that grow up in a steady, stable home have very good statistics to go off to be fairly happy adults. And so I do feel if you did not have that outlook, you can definitely learn and heal from it, but you're not starting from the same spot I started at. And I yeah. think that's what I had to learn. I don't think I quite recognize that. So everybody has privilege. I wasn't privileged in the financial sense, but I was very privileged in the support system. Well, and I can take risks now because I have a safety net. Like my parents financially now are quite well for themselves, like many boomers have with real estate, but a long time to get there. But it doesn't even matter. As long as you have a house in the family, you have somewhere to go. You're never Mm going to be on the streets. You're never going to have to be. So again, you have to set the tone, right? Like there's some people out there that could be on the streets if they tell their boss to F off. You know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. don't have the privilege that some people do. So they have to be a little bit more organized and have a bit more of a plan. 
but you should never stay in a toxic environment in the long term. You should always see it as temporary and you should be working in the background to get your butt out of that. It's my, always my advice to people. You should never, ever settle for what you're not worth. And that self-worth is again, controlled by you. And it's very, very, very hard to see it sometimes if you were raised and told you weren't. And so that's where, you know, I've met a lot of women that have come from type of background and I'm very grateful that I didn't have to. So that's why like everyone's like, oh, you know, why don't you always give someone the benefit of the doubt? I don't have as much time now to sit with every one of my team members, but I do walk around the office a lot and observe people. And you can tell, you know, you won't know the team right away from the get-go, but as the year goes on, you will notice the people that chit-chat and socialize more. And when all of a sudden they're not doing that, as a PM, part of my role is pulling people into my office and just talk to them not about mm. projects, just to make sure they're in a healthy frame of mind. Because sometimes that's also also what sometimes keeps people employed at your company is that leader cares yep. a little bit. You know what I mean? They don't like yep. care at all. Not, And that can make like a huge difference. And so I don't do it for my company. I've stayed with the company for 17 years. So I'm obviously very loyal, but I actually don't do it for the company. I do it because intrinsically think it's part of my job. It's a core value of mine. And it goes back to that foundational value standpoint believe in mentoring and you should help someone if you are able, then that creates a vibe about you as a person. And it creates that environment around you that the people that want to work for you tend to absorb that from you as well. And then over time, that's the team. That's the leadership team. We're all similar in that value standpoint. And decisions can get made a lot faster for the types of people around you. You have to also be a little bit careful that you don't suffer from group think. There's enough diversity of thought in there that some of these people would speak up. And that's also creating that safe environment where the people to speak up are allowed to speak up. So I actually learned this lesson over and over again. Like my team called me into a team's call yesterday, right? When I was in the middle of doing something else and I'm about to go on a three-week vacation. So I'm trying to get it all done. And And here they are calling me. And I actually ended up pretending to one of them this morning because I felt like I acted in that call, like what you bring it up is a burden to me. It's always a burden, but as a project manager, my job is to be interrupted. That literally is my job. And so you don't ever want to create an environment where your team, where they're not telling you something's wrong. Like that's a way worse scenario than just being interrupted at an inconvenient time. So again, when you want to reinforce this behavior in your team, you need to live and breathe it as a leader. You need to enforce it. So as soon as you send them a conflicting message like that, you have to correct it. Maybe not then and there because you might not be aware of it, but I reflect on my day for at least 10 minutes and usually do it when I'm running or something or exercising. I went over that and it really rubbed me the wrong way, that call, and it was all on me. had nothing to do with the team. And so, yeah, they're all like, oh, no, no. Yeah, you were like that at the beginning of the meeting. By the time you ended it, you had calmed down and you were fine with us. That's exactly how it did happen. But I'm kind of like still mad at myself and more disappointed at myself that I picked up that call. Like, why are you calling me? Mm -hmm. And that's so the wrong attitude. That's so Mm -hmm. not what I stand for. But I have been noticing as the project grows more and more advanced and I advance up into the company that I'm entering new ground right now. So I am a little more stressed than I normally am. That's when you get tested and that's when you have to be better than that. Even the best of us have better days than other days, right? And some days you go home, you reflect, you go, yeah, I didn't handle that well, or I wish I'd done something instead or whatever. And some things you can't get back, some things you can go back in the next day and say, Hey, I didn't handle that well. And you talk it through and, you know, at least you sort of make peace with it. I guess just one last question I would ask you, like you work with a lot of younger people, probably in both a formal and an informal way. What are the two or three biggest pieces of advice you would give them in terms of 
how to be thinking about the early part of their career? Uh, so this is probably advice I'd also give my son. So he's four though. So it's a little early. Yeah, no, but I mean, as a young adult, like what yeah. I would be instilling and well, and how I stumbles, failures, mistakes, however you want to phrase them are really a part of life in general. You're going to date the wrong people and choose the wrong company potentially at a time. You might even choose the wrong career and that's okay. And it's never okay though, to stay in that situation. Once you become aware and you're not always aware, you know, I dated my first boyfriend, for example, for five years in retrospect, I should have probably known pretty quickly that he was never going to be the right guy. But I had nothing to compare them against and nothing to learn. So once I realized that was it's on me to get out of it. And Mm. life is totally like that. And you only know what you know, and you might not be aware of you what you don't know. And that's how life works. And you need to have that open mindedness to really ask those questions. So don't be too hard on yourself and understand that you aren't perfect. You will never be perfect. And actually what makes you pretty special is probably those imperfections. Just never be that stubborn person that can't change, that can't listen, that can't take constructive feedback. Because sometimes the people giving you constructive feedback, their opinion wasn't asked and maybe they don't have the best benefit. You know, your judgment as you get older will be able to see whether you should take this advice or not. But you should always at least listen is my point. You shouldn't get too defensive right away. Because if you become those people that people don't give feedback, they'll stop caring. And you don't want to be that project manager like the example I just gave that shuts their team down because they Mm -hmm. got you at an inconvenient time what is that? You don't do that. You need to be always willing to listen. And when you stop listening, you really stop learning. And please don't take it too hard on yourself if you make mistakes. I almost think they're absolutely inevitable. And to be honest, I even think regrets in life are inevitable. But I think if you actually question self-aware and reflect on those decisions, own up to your mistakes and then learn from them and fix them, you rarely make them again. And then they make you so much stronger. And the older you get and the more advanced in your career you become, you actually make less and less mistakes. And that's so wise because mistakes can cost you a lot more later in your career. They nearly cost you Mm. nothing at the beginning. I'll tell you a little secret to all the new grads listening. I don't expect much from my new grads. I see it as my job to train you. I see it my job to mentor you. And I don't think of this question being stupid. So this is your get out of jail free card, guys. Use it as much as you can, because there will come a point in your career where people will have higher expectations of you. Right. And it'll be harder to make mistakes then. Still forgivable, because again, your mistakes might not be as big as you think they are. But that is my whole point, is that if you keep that listening, keep that open-minded, that one's a big one, builds that resilience and termination in you. The second one would probably be find your three biggest weaknesses, your three biggest strengths, and understand that when the situation inevitably changes, that they too can be your three greatest weaknesses and their three greatest strengths. I'm a really good person in an emergency. I take action immediately, but I am not so good when it's not an emergency. So I needed to train myself to pause and be patient. Because how I screwed up early in my career was environments that I should allow to happen organically that I forced because I was impatient. And that cost me. And thank God I learned that lesson eventually. That one was a hard one because it went against my nature. You do have a personality and personality traits are the hardest to change. Because then there's a lot of this advice right now, JR, that's saying like, be yourself and being authentic are two completely different things. You should always be authentic, but your personality should be curved to the professional environment you're in to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I say to people, it's like, you got to be true to yourself, but you also can't bring all your baggage to work every day, right? (laughs) 
because that's not really what work is about. Yeah. As a PM, like I have met people over my career that they always got drama around them. After a while, you do recognize it's almost all self-inflicted. But I'm just always so grateful for like the fact like there's just no trauma and my life's boring. <laughs> you're just like, uh, there come a point where like boring's really awesome, guys. And I know that you never see that in the news. You never see it in the media because it doesn't sell because it's boring. I'm so happy. And so I don't think happiness sells either, JR. So be very, very careful who you choose to be your mentors and who you choose to take advice from. If they are not living the life that you want, then don't listen to them unless they're telling you what not to do. Realize that your weaknesses and your strengths can actually interchange. I actually don't believe at all that there's one great strength. I think communication can actually be a weakness in certain environments where maybe you shouldn't be selling Maybe you should just shut up and listen. Maybe you're the fact your time management skills are bing bong, but like, what do you do in a time when, you know, you need to let someone else. My impatience has made me a bad mentor at times too, because I'll go do and fix it for them. Mm -hmm. I did this with law with my son. I would go fix this problem immediately because it's my son. He's crying. I don't, what mother wants to hear their kid cry. And yeah. And I realized that I was a really lazy kid, a very codependent person. And that's exactly the opposite of resilience. Mm. So you're just like, the biggest thing I want him to learn is resilience. I'm single-handedly a person that's not instilling in him. So it's funny how that can happen. So again, some strengths and weaknesses can be interchangeable. Okay. So you need to learn the environment that you excel in and then recreate that environment over and over and over again. And then it's in secret or in a trusted network, work on those weaknesses in those environments. So if you ever get put in, into it, you blow it away, right? That's yeah. what I always say to people, play to your strengths. I am extremely good at an emergency. So I create all these milestones, all these fake milestones so I can hit, do, 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 do. I'm like the queen of the checklist. So I create that environment. So my productivity is at top capability almost at all time. And so, because yeah. I tend to be a procrastinator if I have all the time in the world, you know, and I learned that one super early in my career. So that one over the 17 years, what I can get done now in a day versus what I could get done 23 when I started my day. So these skills over decades or years can really get refined to a level yeah. of you're pretty up there. So yeah. I know we're out of time. So those are my two very long convoluted <laughs> examples. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll call it there. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it, particularly given that you're about to go on vacation. It was a fun conversation and good to get to know you a little bit. Thanks, Jara. Thanks for having me. Yep. Sure thing. I want to thank Sabrina for joining me today and talking about the work she does, life as a project management, her work lessons, and a lot of other things that we covered in the course of, of roughly an hour. If you're ready to take control of your career, you can visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.